everybody. Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. And I should apologize in advance that my usually dulcet tones may be a little rougher on the edges. Yes, Gordon has been edumacating. It's a good enough word. All day. Talking nonstop, so. Yes. So we're going to talk tonight in episode 136 about a subject near and dear to both of our uh, photographic hearts. And that subject is using exposure compensation to get the image that you actually wanted. Mm -hmm. That sounds reasonable. As opposed to what the camera may have chosen to feed you. Correct. So, Gordon, can you define Exposure compensation. Um, yeah. Uh, exposure compensation is a process. And it's a process of overriding the exposure that has been determined by the camera as being right for you to produce the exposure that you wanted in the first place. Okay. I, and absolutely perfect uh, definition, but that should beg the question from somebody who just dropped four grand on a camera. <laughs> I just dropped four grand on a camera. What's the matter with the camera I bought? Why do I need to compensate for exposure? Uh, because what you didn't buy was a brain for the camera. Oh, oh, oh! You mean that there's thinking involved? Yes. There's yes. some seeing involved. Yes. Mm. And um, I think the two reasons why uh, one needs to do this is, uh, firstly, is the way the camera responds to a lighting situation. Namely, it reads the light being reflected. And the second part of this is what the camera tries to do with the information that it has with this, namely to give you a set of values that will take the light, however it may be, and present it to you as middle gray. So average all the tones that it sees Yes. across, you know, whether it's two or 300 metering sensors, pull in all that information, and then calculate based on an algorithm an exposure that overall is about middle gray. Mm -hmm. Which is great. But what if that's not what you want? Oh, what it isn't. So then what do we do? Um, that's when we start invoking this here exposure compensation thing. Yes. And do a little bit of magic. But it's easy magic. By and large, yes, it, it is easy magic. There's no materials required, no strange dances, chants in foreign languages, no blood sacrifices required. We might have to turn a dial or press a button or rotate a wheel. But let me ask you a question then. And I recognize that not 
all creatives who consider themselves serious are going to use these tools, but we have fully automatic modes like green means go auto. We've got program mode, which, you know, has millions and millions of samples that have been analyzed by the camera manufacturer. And if you did nothing, you get pretty decently exposed images. Not necessarily a good picture, but I, I think we would agree we get decently exposed images. Yep. So what? how does exposure compensation work in these fully, in the context of these fully automatic implementations? Well, you've got, depends on your definition of what you call a fully automatic implementation. There's uh, what you refer to as the green. Yep. And the green is truly automatic. And the camera, I don't think it particularly cares what you want at that point. It's going to give you what it was told to give you in the first place. Mm -hmm. The second part of that is the program mode, which is sort of like automatic on steroids. It gives you a predefined mode or predefined exposure in an image, mm -hmm. but it allows you the ability, generally by twirling a wheel or some such, to override that by maybe plus or minus three stops or thereabouts. Okay. And it looks at its algorithms and says, okay, if this is what you want, this is your new set of numbers, and goes ahead and takes the image. Right. And then when we get into these semi-automatic modes, aperture preferred, shutter preferred, uh, or as Canon likes to call it, time value. At that point, you are locking in one of your choices, mm -hmm. and then the compensation is going to make changes to the other one? Yes. Right. Now, what happens if the if the person using the camera um, is using, you know, something like automatic ISO? Then it will modify the two non-fixed variables. So, if you're using aperture priority. It'll give you some combination of shutter and ISO to give you the best combination it can come up with. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. this is all sounding fairly straightforward, like easy magic. But from our point of view, it is. What goes on inside the camera is another story altogether. But, but all we have to know is that if I twiddle this dial, it's going to make this either brighter or less bright. And that's about the extent of it. So it really does simplify through all the techno gunk down to, gosh, I would like this image to be a little brighter or a lot brighter or a little darker or a lot darker. And here's a, let's call it a single control mechanism to get us there. Right. Now, because... You know, and I know, we're going to hear it. 
Well, if you want to do that, why not just shoot it in manual? Because it's faster. Oh. And you may not forget to put the camera back <laughs> into a non-manual mode. Yes. Thereby saving hundreds of photos poorly exposed because the photographer wasn't paying attention. Problem exists behind the camera. Right? So, you get all the control in manual or within three stops under and, and three stops mm -hmm. over in mm -hmm. general mm -hmm. without having to remember to set everything. Right. So for most folks, that's probably, I would say, a reasonable balance of service. By and large, yes. I, I think the camera manufacturers have taken everything that we like to think is important. Well, uh, the argument may be raised, well, it's going to send the ISO up too high and I don't want it to do that. Well, I think the camera manufacturers are aware of that issue. And they would give you a set of values that will do the best to circumvent that. And if they can't, the chances are that you can't either. Because the light is the light. The light is the light, and the camera is the camera, and you only got so many things you can manipulate. So in talking to folks about this, there's always some reticence, mm -hmm. some, I don't know if it's fear or reluctance, but simplistically, if we turn that dial wheel push button on the plus side, the image is going to get brighter. Mm -hmm. And if we go to the minus side, it's going to get darker. Mm -hmm. Now, is everything going to get darker if we go to the darker side? Yes. So that's not occurring just in one area. It's happening across the entire image. Yes, it's, it's a global adjustment. Okay. Um. There are so many brights and there are so many darks uh, in your image and the camera has seen them and it's given you a middle gray. Right. And if you want to change that, well, it's going to shift everything down and give you more darks, uh, one middle gray and less bright brights. Or it's going to take you the other way and give you a lot of brights, one middle gray and less dark dogs. Okay, that seems to make sense. So then, I suppose there's two approaches to this. One is try to do a bunch of calculations and figure out where the subject is going to fall on that range of tones. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting that that's not a worthwhile thing to do. But is there an easy way or an easier way to see what's going to happen? Like, I don't know. Look at the LCD or the EVF. Yes, um, there is that. Uh, however, in, again, I've, I think there's a degree of 
not discrimination, but difference um, between what you get in a digital D or a DSLR yes. and perhaps a mirrorless camera. Well, very much so, because with a, a, an electronic viewfinder and a mirrorless, you're going to see the effect right then and there. Correct. Whereas if you're using a DSLR, you can spin those wheels till cattle sprout wings, and you're not going to see any change in the optical viewfinder. Correct. You, you will see a change in, I don't know what you call it, even the exposure compensation bar or the exposure meter along the bottom of your yes. viewfinder. It will show you that. But what that translates into in the image, um, only ex only your experience will tell you that. So for the folks who are using a DSLR, who want to see that in real time, they could use the LCD yes. on the back of the camera. Yes. So this is not this is not a tool for mirrorless users only, although it may be simpler to adapt to if you have an electronic viewfinder and don't typically work off the LCD. Mm. Okay. And then, of course, there's the histogram. Everybody's got the histogram. Okay. So and what do they do with it? Well, that's a good question. We don't want to get into that. But, but whatever, you, whatever you saw on the first exposure that the camera gave you, as you twiddle that knob, you're going to see it moving either to the right or to the left. And if the part of the middle, which is presumably what you want to be bright, isn't in the middle, then you, or is in the middle, then you might want to move it up or down depending upon what you feel like is going to happen to that image. So this is a, what, what I hear you saying is that while the setting you make has a technical Im effect on the image, how much you change is entirely subjective. Creator, Absolutely. Creator's choice. Absolutely. And you also suggested that you may have a baseline image, mm -hmm. maybe one taken at zero, zero, mm -hmm. and that tells you where the camera thinks things should be. Yep. And then you can make a decision based on that because we can see what that looks like in playback no matter what kind of camera we have. Yes. And we can look at it and go, oh, you know what? I'd like that a little brighter. Or I'd like that a little darker. Mm -hmm. Now, are there some potential downsides to, well, let's suppose that we make the image brighter. You said it's global, so it's happening to everything. Right. So is there a downside to that? Yes. Uh, if everything is going to move, the things that were bright before may be too bright now and may have moved into an area where the information in that area of the image is not going to be recoverable in terms of the amount of detail you can show in the picture. It blows out. It blows out. And so by corollary, um, if you went the other way... Yep. You could throw everything into a cave. Yes. 
or some portion of the image into the cave. Correct. Okay. So the decision has to be made then by you uh, of these things, which, which and what is important. And those have to be exposed. Is there a right answer? Of course not. It's whatever you like. Sure. And how much is all that storage costing us? Nothing more than you paid in the first place. <laughs> right. So the other element here, because this concept is is not new, the big difference over with the digital over film is you're going to see right away. Mm-hmm. And you can make a decision and go, okay, that didn't work well. I don't think I'll take a hundred more like this. Right. I'll try something else. And you, make it, and you can make it very quickly. So you can make the correction, I don't know, generally within two frames maybe. Yeah. I think that that's fair. I think that's very fair. Now, when we're talking about compensation so far, we've been talking about making a global adjustment to the overall exposure based on the light that the camera's internal meter is reading. Correct. The ambient light, the light that is already there. Correct. But what if we're, what if our primary source of light is not ambient light? Ah, no, we have a similar but different issue. Is it a conundrum? It has been, but now it's an epiphany. Oh! <laughs> you started it. <laughs> Last week we had conundrum. This week we have epiphany. <laughs> you don't just learn photography here, folks. You learn vocabulary. That's why Gordon's here. <laughs> because he is a loquacious individual. Okay. So epiphanize. Okay. Um, what I found out last week from showing you some images that I couldn't understand what I had done is I knew but failed to apply a, a particular piece of knowledge and that is that as soon as you turn your flash on the camera now ignores the basic ambient settings that you had dialed in and says, okay, we got a flash, uh, we'll go back to square one and produce middle gray. And presuming that the flash is the dominant source. Presuming that the flash is the dominant source. And that's probably what a lot of folks are going to encounter. Why did they put the flash on in the first place? Because they didn't have enough light. Because it's freaking dark. Or too dark. And <coughs> what you just correctly discovered, <coughs> excuse me, is that there are two separate but similarly powerful compensation. <coughs> yeah. Let me try, let me try that again. Compensation uh, mechanisms. Yeah. One for flash. One for flash and one for the ambient. And when the flash is on, the flash takes precedence over the the ambient. Right. Depending on shutter speed and 
all that other stuff. But you're using the flash in the premise that it is becoming your dominant source. Right. So your whatever compensation you choose to make, you may need to make it on the flash, maybe not on ambient, or maybe some combination of the two. Mm-hmm. So you've introduced another variable, but that also introduces more creative opportunity. Yes. So if I wanted to do something like fill flash mm-hmm. outside. Right. I want to darken the ambient a little bit. Yep. Go minus on it, but mm. maybe put a little bit more of a kiss of light in the flash and go a little bit of plus in my flash exposure compensation. Right. Because the two are not... Actually, I need to be very careful here. The two are not bound together except on some Nikon cameras where they are. Mm -hmm. But that setting is reversible. Right. Or changeable anyway. So... then I have the opportunity with a proper combination of shutter speed, ISO, and aperture to have ambient light contributing to the image and flash contributing to the image, but I don't have to accept that middle gray exposure in either case. Correct. So as a creative, I just gave myself myself a whole lot more rope mm-hmm. but that's leading us into another whole aspect of photography the whole flash controlling ambient and uh, uh, and another podcast it really is <laughs> it really is it's one of my favorite subjects but uh, you know it, it, uh, before you made that point to me it, I I knew it existed. I knew sometimes when to use it. I had forgotten that. I assumed that because I had set my exposure compensation on my camera as bright, it would assume the ambient was brighter and it would give me more flash. And it didn't. And uh, so I, I think the point, the point here is that you can control the exposure um, of the ambient light. And by a very similar mechanism, pressing a button and twirling a knob, you can make your flash fire brighter or less bright and give yourself the image that you, that you want. But don't necessarily expect that they're both going to happen at the same time if you haven't made the, the adjustments. It's a choice. It's a choice. It's a decision that you as the creative make. Okay. So we have two kinds of compensation. Let's go back to just ambient compensation for a moment. Because I want to talk a little bit about a subject... (coughs) Excuse me, folks. I'd like to talk about a subject that was super popular about five years ago. And then seems to have lost a little bit of enthusiasm. Now, I know why, but I don't... I fear we may have abandoned it 
for the wrong reasons. And that's high dynamic range photography. Now in HDR, high dynamic range, what did we do? We made multiple images mm -hmm. or multiple exposures of the same subject right. more correctly, but how are they different? They were shot at, well, to keep it simple, they were shot in varying degrees of over-brightness and under-brightness uh, by about the same amount on, on both sides. And that would all be then blended into one image where they took the best of the dark and the best of the bright and the best of the middle and supposedly gave you something that was adequately exposed across the board. Right. So the whole concept between high dynamic range, when it was created, was to take the content from multiple images and based on an algorithm, combine them together. So I would get perhaps more shadow detail and more highlight detail in addition to my mid-tones detail. Mm -hmm. And I can recall when this first started, the advocates of HDR were saying, well, you need to make nine exposures or seven exposures. And they were dialing in differences of a half a step or a third of a step between all these images. And we saw some very nice images result after processing, and we saw some that were perhaps less, less appealing. Mm -hmm. And then people seemed to move away from HDR. Mm -hmm. What changed? Uh, the sensors changed. How do you mean? Well, the the early the early sensors had a pretty narrow dynamic range. Uh, I I don't know the numbers myself, but but it was a narrow range. It it didn't even come close to approximating what we were seeing on film. Yeah, yeah, um, and and just to throw some relativistic numbers in the human eye depending on which scientist you talk to can see somewhere between 20 and 22 full stops of range right the sensors back in the day you know they don't see six or seven right so you had to underexpose and overexpose and then blend together to try to approximate what the human eye could see. Okay, yes. And the mechanism to do that was, I don't know, go three under, two under, one, one under, one over, two over, three over. Yep. That'll give you seven exposures. Plus, so let's say your dynamic range was seven stops mm -hmm. natively. That would give you <coughs> basically through combination and a good algorithm, 13 stops. Right. Which would have more dynamic range. Yes. But you said sensors changed. Yep. The sensors now I will give you um, intrinsically at least 13, 13 stops of dynamic range. Yeah, for the most part, that's absolutely right. 
So without doing anything, you've approximated what we were achieving with the HDR image. Exactly right. And to some, to some large extent, that's why HDR has, I don't know, fallen out of favor, but fewer people are using it today. Mm-hmm. The other challenge that we have is that those compensation dials still only go plus or minus three. Yep. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. If I have a sensor that can go natively 13 stops, and then I'd give three at the top and three at the bottom, I'm mm-hmm. still giving it 19 stops of range. Right. Better than I'll get with the sensor itself. And that more closely approximating the human eye. Yes. <clears throat> the big challenge, though, is that the short gap that we have between exposures, the sensor's already covering. Mm-hmm. You know, so if we went plus minus one, Pointless. It, it really is negligible to the sensor because the sensor has so much dramatic range. So maybe this idea of leveraging exposure compensation as a creative tool is maybe you don't have to make five exposures or seven. Maybe you could make three. Right. But at minus four, zero plus four. Right. And in that example, and we know the sensor can handle a four-stop shift in right. 13 stops of range. Right. We're now at 21 stops of range. Now, okay, I get it. The compensation dial may not go to four stops or five stops. Mm-hmm. But it would go three. Yes, and that would still give us in three captured images, not seven or nine. Right. It would still give us 19 stops of range. Right. So very close to what the eye is doing. Very close to what the eye is doing. And the way to do that is by using that exposure compensation capability. Yes. So, now, so go ahead, go ahead. So there's... There's a whole other topic that we could get to in another episode called Exposing to the Right that leverages sensor responsiveness. But even if we never think about that, 19 stops of range could produce a pretty compelling image. Mm -hmm. Even if we were using the zero position as the mid-tone. Right. Right, because if we have thirteen, we've got six above and six below, natively. Right. And if we use that compensation dial, wheel button, we can nine below, and nine above. Yep. Then we still have to combine them using some kind of HDR software. But wait, HDR is built into everything today. Mm-hmm. If you use Lightroom or Photoshop or I think any of the other tools, they've probably got an HDR mode. I know Lightroom and Photoshop do. Yes, they, they, they do. And it works pretty darn well. And if you really want to get fancy, it's got an HDR panorama view. There you are. 
shoot your panorama <laughs> in HDR. So we wanted to touch on this idea around compensation as more than just fixing the one or adjusting the one, but to give you the capability to think about fixing something that is more robust, perhaps richer, mm-hmm. a richer image without having to make 50 exposures right? and try to combine them together and do all that kind of stuff. Now, where would you be inclined to want to use, or more correctly, you look at a scene, where might you be inclined to use, to say, aha, or whatever it is that Holmes <laughs> used to say. Ah, this uh, is a place for exposure compensation. Well, um, the the one we've already already talked about, where you've got uh, very bright brights and very dark shadows, um, uh, would be one. Uh, but that's that's getting more into the HDR component than the exposure compensation. But if you're if you're in a darkish area and you want to produce an adequately exposed image. Uh, adequately exposed being you you know what color that your subject is or what degree of brightness your subject is and you know that the camera's not going to give that to you so you can use that to make your subject brighter that's that's the technical aspects of getting it to uh, a standard image but more than that, you may want to do something artistically. You may want to emphasize the brights. You may want to blow out the brights. You may want to change the entire mood of the image by making it lighter and airier and Christmassy. I didn't say that. No, but somebody did. <laughs> Looks a lot like you. Uh, or you may want to go the other way and make it darker and grinchy. Oops, didn't say that either. No, you didn't. <laughs> there, there, there's so definitely an the, evil elf in here somewhere. <laughs> it's, it's a tool to be used to bring out the moodiness of, of images. I Easily. agree. But it's also an incredible tool for a scene because we are coming into the holiday season and where we are in Canada, we're going to have more of that white stuff on the ground. Oh yeah. And again, and I know we've talked about this before. I take my camera, I trust my meter and I've got a beautiful snow scene Mm -hmm. before the dogs have come by. Yep. What is the camera going to do when it sees all that white? Give you gray. So here, for those of you shooting in winter, white becomes gray. What do we need to do to make it white again? We need to make it brighter. Now that may sound to some people, well, wait, it's already bright. I don't want it to be too bright. And that's fair. Maybe you don't. 
But for the most part, your snow scene that has white snow is going to be more pleasing than the snow scene that has gray snow. Yes. So you would add exposure. Yep. That's so you would add the exposure compensation. And to our snowbirds who go south, translate snow into sand. Same deal. Beach. Same effect. Because beach sand is not middle gray. Nope. It's bright and specular and yellow, maybe. Yeah. But it's brighter than the midtown. It's bright. So how do you do that? Quick tip, dial plus two. Yep. Just dial in plus two and go from there. Now, by corollary, though, I want to photograph a black cat or a black dog lying in its dark pet bed. Mm -hmm. What's the meter going to do? Give you a gray dog, gray pet, gray, gray bed. So how do I get them to be black again? You turn the dial the other way. You take away exposure compensation. You take away, you use the exposure compensation to take away light. Right. Is that right? Now, if you've ever, if you've ever been a photographer at a wedding or had the misfortune to be the wedding photographer and you have the male part of the bridal party all in black tuxedos, and the female part of the bridal party, all in white, you better shoot them both together because that will average to gray. Yep. But if you shoot either group on their own, compensation is going to be critical. Right. Or those beautiful black tuxedos are going to look like they got dragged through the dirt. Right. And those beautiful light dresses are going to look like they got dragged through the dirt. Yep. And so the magic, the trick, is to look at the scene. Yes. And say, okay, I know what the camera's going to do. Average to middle gray. Mm-hmm. But is my scene really middle gray? Right. And if it's not, what's the fastest way to fix that? All we've been talking about. Compensation. Yep. Don't have to go to manual. Don't have to change. I Don't change ISO and shutter speed. That's not going to make any difference at all. Right. You're going to use the compensation to adjust for your subject. And it literally is as easy as we've been talking about right. Oh, and what if you take one and you don't like it? It needs to be lighter or darker. Take another. Take another. Move the dial. And because you've probably got a relatively recent camera, don't do it in one-third or one-half stop increments. Go full stops. Because you've got the dynamic range in that sensor. That exactly. Exactly. Whatever it goes to, don't worry about it. You can fix it. Yeah, it's going to go there. And this is true 
whether you as the creative choose to shoot in raw or you choose to shoot in JPEG. And, you know, Gordon and I were talking, I guess it was a few episodes ago, because neither one of us were big smartphone photographers. But we've discovered that our smartphone cameras do exposure compensation. Mm -hmm. And you see it right there, live on screen. Yep. The one other uh, thing that just crossed my mind is that probably a lot of people are getting... um, they're photographing things outside, and they, let's say they're not photographers, or if they are photographers, they're beginning photographers, and they haven't noticed where the sun is in relation to where you're pointing. And mm. if your subject has now got the sun behind them, your camera is going to see all sun and make it very dark, and your subject is going to be a black blob. Probably not what you're looking for. No. So how so do you? So that's that. That is the scenario where you need to increase your exposure compensation. Yes, the sky is going to go white. But what's the subject? But you're not looking at the sky. You're looking at Johnny or Mary or Fred or John and Bob or whatever. Yeah, your subject isn't your the subject background. Is, your subject is going to be adequately lit. And if you're lucky, you're going to get some really nice-looking colors in the hair. Yeah. But the sky is going to be white. So accept that and... Live with it. Live with it. Crop the image later on, and you won't see the sky at all. But you'll have a well-lit photo. Yes. And I guess it would be the same thing true if you had a brightly spotlit subject against a black background or a oh, very yeah. dark background because the camera's going to see all that dark. So, oh, well, I better I better raise some light in there. And then my subject looks like they're on file. <laughs> yep. And how would we deal with that? We would take light away. Mm-hmm. Go to the minus side. Jeez, Gordon, that makes a whole lot of sense. And it's pretty darn straightforward. It is. So who should be afraid to do this? No, you should never be afraid to do anything. Uh, My first computer, uh, (laughs) this was at an age when most of us didn't know anything about computers. And uh, they kept saying that people my age were afraid of them. So I bought a computer and I refused to read the manual. I plugged everything in, turned it on, blew it up and said, okay, not afraid of it anymore. Let's go do something else. Yeah, if, if you go too far with exposure compensation, don't go that far on the next shot. Yeah. And if you didn't go far enough, go further. Go further. You can't hurt somebody, you can't hurt yourself, and you can't blow up your camera by making the image too bright or too dark. Right. And if you stare directly into the sun, you've got a bigger problem. Yep. Unrelated to photography. Yes. Don't. (laughs) But we're not here to help you with that problem. (laughs) 
Yeah, there's a, there's a limit to uh, to my willingness to get involved at, at some point. Right. So, is there anything that we've missed, Gordon? Oh, probably, but nothing I can think of. Yeah, that makes two of us. But I, I don't know. I think we covered a fairly fairly comprehensive amount. Yeah, I think the closing thoughts are, if you've not ever done this, go try it. And if you've done it and you haven't felt it worked out, try again. Try again. Push harder. Because it truly is a magical tool to help you get the image the way you see the image. Correct. Not necessarily the way the camera sees the image. So, for the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast, I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. And we will speak to you again very soon.